Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. Welcome to part two of celiac disease. Part one kind of blew my mind, so I cannot wait for part two. And part two is going to be all Dr. Sand all the time. So jump in, (laughs) Dr. Sand. So basically, I've got two big chunks of celiac stuff that's more of the modern updates in research. Um, And this episode is going to be a lot of the DDW highlights around celiac for 2022. Abstracts, things like that. I'm not really sure how we're going to put this into a podcast episode, but wow, there was some important stuff we should be knowing about as clinicians. Um, There will be a whole other episode on the microbiome, so stay tuned. We are getting there. Um, But generally, some, some important things we need to understand. This was my favorite. Biopsy guidelines for celiac disease diagnosis. So as we talked about in episode one, gold standard is biopsy from endoscopy. Mm -hmm. Great. It is recommended that gastroenterologists perform um, greater than or equal to four biopsies um, to be able to diagnose it. If you do three or less, you're missing a lot of celiac disease. Um, However, this four or more biopsies is only being performed in 42% of endoscopies. I feel like that does not surprise me at all. They, They took this data, they stratified it for several very interesting variables, but to put it in perspective on extremes here, you are most likely to get the f- over four or equal to four specimens if you are a female. Get your procedure done in the U.S. Northwest by a female gastroenterologist. Huh. And if the indication for the procedure was diarrhea, less or so if the indication for the procedure was for suspected celiac disease, anemia, or dyspepsia. So basically what you're saying is if you're a female gastroenterologist yep. and you are scoping females yep. in the Pacific Northwest for diarrhea, for diarrhea, you are golden. You are better. Yeah, you are um, better. Wow, that's you, not even golden, just better. What that's you don't want to be is a male... With a male gastroenterologist getting your procedure done in the U.S. Northeast, and you went into the endoscopy for a diagnosis of heartburn. Do you ever wonder who comes up with, I know what we should study. Yeah. (laughs) Females getting scoped. I (laughs) wonder that. But I mean, I could understand why someone who went in for reflux or, you know esophagitis Mm, is not getting small intestinal biopsies for celiac disease. So um, I I take back my earlier criticism of what I don't know about. Also, (laughs) Also, like what we took into account, we're missing folks with celiac disease. We need to be testing these people. So it's on us as people who don't do endoscopies to be testing serum. But maybe we also should be educating our patients like, hey, when you go into this endoscopy, 
triple check they're going to do four biopsies for you. And then what's the risk of getting biopsies when you don't need, you know, there's things we don't know necessarily, but that Versus a GI doctor the risk might of be weighing. celiac. Correct. But yeah. if they had negative serum markers and they're in there for reflux. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, testing disparities, testing and treatment disparities. So you mean healthcare system isn't completely equal for you know, everybody? I, I've never heard that Shocker before. here, but um, a couple really interesting things. So um, folks, different top populations I'll talk about here, but self-identified African-Americans on surveys were less likely to test positive um, with celiac disease serology Hmm. um earlier on so their serum is not always showing positive at the same Ooh. rate of other folks yeah. they might be getting this um also folks that self-identified as african-american are not getting hla tested in this study zero of the folks that uh-huh. were worked up for celiac disease were offered hla testing uh-huh so that's the genotype that do would... we have any idea about how much HLA testing is costing now? Right. The reason I don't order is because I never know if it's going to be covered and it was hit or miss. Yeah. So I think there's like situations where it could be useful, but I'm never sure what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and we can say all of that and still offer it to our patients. The interesting thing about this study was it was offered and given to white folks. I see. So that's a definite yeah. discrepancy. Yeah. That obviously and is a just, huge problem. And just to clarify that. African Americans present with celiac equal to Caucasian Americans or Asian Americans. Yeah, equal. Uh, the sorry, say that again. Do African Americans present with celiac oh. equal to Caucasian Americans or Asian Americans or? You mean in symptoms? No, I mean in, in prevalence. In prevalence. Oh well, we don't have data because we're not screening people equally. So we don't know. Yeah, we're not screening everybody well enough, but let alone um, various groups of people. Um, So other testing treatment disparities here that we need to have on our radar. The chances of getting an appropriate workup is reduced in Black and Hispanic folks. When they looked at celiac disease claims in Medicare and Medicaid... So they looked at, uh-huh. you know, it was a retrospective. Um, 92.7 and 62.5% were, were for white folks. Okay. That's awful. So we're we're killing it testing white people. And we're not even killing it. We're just, we just are actually testing yeah, them. Yeah, we're, we're actually testing them. them. Yeah. Um, then they stratified this by geographic region. Most beneficiaries of these claims, so most of the folks tested, were in the Northeast and the Midwest. Much fewer in the South. So, mm. you know, if you happen to be Hispanic or Black in the South, you are probably not going to get diagnosed. Right. Very unlikely. Interestingly, um, the uh, and touching back on the misdiagnosis of IBS, so we talked about in part one, the ge- geographic distribution for being diagnosed with IBS was higher in the South. Hmm. So that tells us that these folks are being diagnosed with IBS mm-hmm. and not celiac disease. Nobody's looking any further. Right. Oh, it's all in your head. You have IBS. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So obvious problems with that. Um, then we've got a lot of studies on um, symptoms for folks and basically how, how gluten-free diet is not sufficient. It's not working in right. people. 60% of folks with celiac disease who are gluten-free say it is not sufficient. They personally do not feel their symptoms are well managed. So that's a problem. Um following and and more sort of discrepancies here they followed 212 celiac disease patients for five years who all agreed to follow a strict gluten-free diet um and had regular checkups with the the study team Mm -hmm. half of them were symptomatic during the first five years um many with the main symptom that caused them to get diagnosed so that's significant the biggest takeaway from the study um was that being male 
was significantly associated with lower risk of being symptomatic. Huh. Huh. So just by being a gendered male, mm-hmm. you don't have as many symptoms or you don't You get better. You get better. You get better. Something's healing yep. more quickly. I, I do wonder, like, if typical recommendations... At least when I was training, I know they often would also recommend from a traditional GI perspective to also go dairy-free, lactose-free for a certain number of months. Because, you know, with the villus atrophy, you're not going to be making sufficient lactase. Yeah. So that seems like a, like a, you know, a pretty important recommendation to make if you're going to be treating someone for recovery from celiac. I don't know the current recommendations on that or how much is being implemented as far as removing certain sugars that aren't going to be digested. Right. Yeah, and just the the overall inflammation load, right. you know, on folks we need to consider. Uh, you know, that's so funny because where my brain went, I went somewhere totally different. I was thinking I popped into the astrobolon, right? The astrobolon yep. is a part of the microbiome, which I know we're not about to talk about till a later episode. I'm gonna say it, and I was like, <laughs> is it because the astrobolon or the hormonal microbiome makeup? has more t- pushing towards testosterone. Testosterone is anabolic, right? It builds. Mm-hmm. Right. And so do do does testosterone help improve recovery? recovery? That was, that's where yeah. I am. There are some interesting things coming out about testosterone and the microbiome. Oh, I mean, of course, there's an uh-huh. interplay. Um, so we, we should have a whole episode on all this stuff. I mean, it's so fascinating. Lots of implications for treatment. Right. And it's this isn't specific to gender, but I don't recall a patient that I've had with celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity that didn't have other food sensitivities given the autoimmune predisposition to developing these issues. So I don't know that that's taken into account with standard recommendations. I don't know if I agree. And I also think I, I have come to the place where I don't think I worry about diet as intensely as you do. So I could just be missing it. Yeah. But I, I feel like, you know, I don't have a lot of other food intolerances with my non-celiac gluten sensitivity. That's interesting. And I think when we're talking anything about gender or sex in studies, huge bias against self-identified gender versus biological sex Mm -hmm. and who we're choosing to study and what we allow for identified gender in studies. That's totally true. That is a a big uh, deficiency in studies right now. Um, so sort of the last thing I think I have here on, um, things we need to watch out for in terms of, um, disparities is the role, and we touched on this in in part one, is the role of food insecurity. And this obviously is, we should be screening in all of our patients, but there was a nationwide study showing households on a gluten-free diet for man, like specifically folks that were trying to manage celiac disease in a family member, Mm -hmm. showed intentional gluten consumption, meaning they chose to eat it knowing it was bad, Mm -hmm. um, Intentional gluten consumption rose from 1 in 20 households to 1 in 10 households during the pandemic, Mm. only due to decreased access to gluten-free foods. And as we talked about, it's expensive. These are expensive. But this is an under-recognized risk for these patients. We need to be screening food insecurity, um, particularly in folks where symptoms aren't improving. Right. Um, and even if it is, they're they're knowledgeable about what they're doing, they may not have access to the only recommended treatment we have currently for celiac disease. Right. And it may not be, it doesn't always have to be more expensive. For example, rice and beans, right? But it could be more of an educational component or a life component where, you know, people are eating out, they need to get something quick and they can't, then it becomes more expensive. But 
in an ideal world, (laughs) if we're able to get things that we make at home and such, it doesn't have to be a more expensive diet, especially if it's more of a whole foods diet. If that's available. You know, there are a lot of food deserts in our country where there is a whole foods plopped right in the middle of a gentrified community, but no one can afford their beans and rice at whole foods. They can only afford to Trader Joe's for the beans and rice. If there is one. Okay. So I'm I'm just going to actually, I'm going to, I'm going to counter that fact that in 2010, my husband and I did this awesome cross country bicycle trip. Right. And I've been gluten free probably since I was diagnosed with Crohn's in, uh, 20, uh, 2007. So I've probably been gluten-free since 2009. Right. And we were on this cross country bicycle trip. And you know, when you, when you bicycle around the country, you're taking these really, really small roads. You're going through these really, really small towns. I was able to eat gluten-free in 2010. Yeah. Everywhere. Right. I think the the big thing we're missing is being folks of privilege, being folks with access uh, opposed to a single mom with uh, three jobs, yeah, taking care of a bunch of kids who doesn't have the time to go to stores, doesn't have the the access right. to be able to go to a Trader Joe's or even a farmer's market or maybe even have the education on what that means. And that might be a piece of it, too. And the only thing in that person's neighborhood is a KFC. And right. that is the only way in five minutes she can adequately feed her family. That's completely true in lots of areas, like yeah. in parts of Philadelphia where we totally. lived. So. Yeah. And that, you know, we see those patients too um so we just need to be thinking about like why are these folks not getting better do they even have food that they need you know can they be feeding their families um um other totally random things here um so mast cells celiac and mast cells um mast cells in the duodenum okay wait wait. define a mast cell mast cell okay so mast cell is a type of white blood cell that releases histamine um, it is implicated in mast cell activation disorders and all sorts of things where the, the immune system is just really too excited about something. Yeah. Um, and we're finding a correlation with a lot of conditions and mast cells at the site. Mast cell is definitely having a moment, just like Boy, I'll was say. having a moment yes. like five years ago. Yes. And there's lots of other mediators besides histamine, but the, that's the one Absolutely. we focus on and measure. Right now. Yeah. And one that yeah. patients sort of know yes, with antihistamines definitely. and all that. There'll be a better that. one in three definitely. years. Absolutely. We'll, we'll all about at that point. And I had no idea there was a connection between celiac disease and mast cells. I know. I also don't think I knew that. Did you know that, Abby? Well, I think any type of anything. You mean if they have active celiac disease? I don't know. And that's like a good question. Gluten exposure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of makes sense that yeah. if their body's trying to fight something. But yeah. Basically, what they found in people who remain symptomatic. They found more, and that could be folks that stopped a gluten-free diet three, five years ago. Right. Um, mast cells were found in their duodenum, highest in folks that were symptomatic. Huh. So kind of an so end gluten, pathway. So this might be another reason totally. why they're not 100% getting better while discontinuing gluten. And another route in, potentially, for us to help them right. resolve the inflammation And then look for symptoms. the other things, triggering yep. the mast cells if they're not right. eating gluten anymore. Yeah, and we all have, you know, sort of heard of the mast cell POTS, EDS, triad that we should be having on our our radar for some of those folks. Um, There's a higher percentage of people with POTS in the celiac community than the general community. Okay. So there's a lot of crossover there we have yet to learn. Yeah. But that was an interesting um, tidbit. Um, Another cool thing, crossover, SIBO. So they did a a systematic review and meta-analysis of a bunch of studies um, and basically found that there was a higher concentration of folks with celiac disease in the general population who have SIBO. Mm-hmm. We can figure that one out. Mm-hmm. 
celiac disease folks who were non-responsive to a gluten-free diet were more likely to have SIBO. That to me makes perfect sense because SIBO is so locked into anatomical changes, like with right. inflammatory bowel disease. Right. And celiac people definitely have anatomical changes. Yeah. Because of the villi and microvilli. Absolutely. And and all the other tangential things, visceral hypersensitivity and things that are contributing if there's a persistent overgrowth in right. the organ that's already struggling, yeah. of course they're going to feel bad. And, you know, to touch on the microbiome stuff again, they're innate, but but only a little bit. (laughs) Only a little bit. Their their immune system that is helping to fight off overgrowth isn't working as well because the the cells are not healthy. You know, everything's So there's probably a higher prevalence of protozoa and fungal overgrowth too, but they may not have studied that. I would imagine yes. so. I would also, because there's a huge, I mean, we already know overlap. that um, mast cells increase with both fungal overgrowth and parasites and protozoa. Yeah. Like, that's just physiology. Right. Right, right, right. It, it makes perfect sense. We just should have that on our radar. Most, as we discussed, most celiac patients don't feel better on a right. gluten-free diet, mm. even it's though that's enough. the only therapy we have on the table right now. So we should be screening for these other co-infections and, yes. and whatever else. Um, they did study if we should be doing lactulose breath test or the small bowel aspirate, consistent with pretty much everything. Lactulose breath test catches more. Than the aspirate? Than the aspirate. But there could Whoa. be some false, false positives. positives. Okay. You know, it's okay. not it's okay. not as good of a test, but who the heck is going to do a small bowel aspirate right. culture? Yeah. Um, so I would say it's what we've got. We should use it. Um, 24% of people versus 12% of celiac folks had um, SIBO. So 24% for the lactulose breath test, 12% in the small bowel aspirate. Okay. So, um, yeah. So we could probably do a whole episode on crossover between SIBO and other conditions like celiac disease. Um, the last kind of major tidbit from um, DDW in terms of just abstracts, and then we'll get into treatments on the horizon. Did you say what DDW is ever? Digestive Disease Week! <laughs> my favorite week of the year! Um, Apparently, you know what I learned? I learned that DDW is like mainly a West Coast thing. And then there's the American College of Gastroenterology, which is mainly on the East Coast. And so like gastros from the East Coast, I'm like, they're like, oh, I'm not going to do the schlep to DDW. Got it. But West Coast gastros, they're like, DDW, I'm not going to schlep to American College of Gastroenterology. Absolutely. Well, I guess I'm a a loyalist for DDW. There you go. (laughs) Until I move East Coast or something. Um, So uh, celiac disease and neoplasm risk, which goes back to our discussion on informed consent for testing. Right. Um, so they're seeing associations between celiac disease and different types of neoplasms, but we do not know the mechanisms of this yet. So basically, we're just seeing there's a correlation. Um, you are more likely, if you have celiac disease, f- to get small bowel cancers, bile duct cancers, endocrine, and lymphoma. You are less likely to get respiratory and anal cancers. Okay. Mm. Which was kind of interesting. Yeah. So basically, if, if someone has celiac disease and we're not testing and treating, what they didn't actually say here, though, is if you have celiac disease and you're well-controlled, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's a, does that, that decrease? Risk. Yeah. But then again, that brings us back to there are lots of people who don't eat gluten but are still poorly controlled because right. there's lots of factors that go into Absolutely. the microbiome. Absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. 100%. Which... Is that, do you think this should bring us to what we do? You diagnose, you cut out gluten, what do we do? I know, next? yeah. I mean, I am lost. Obviously, yeah, the, I think only, the only treatment we have um, on the table that's recommended mm-hmm. is a gluten-free diet. We right. know that's not working. Right. Um, there are, they did announce. Well, no, 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 no. We know that it's not, it's not that it's not working. Right. Sometimes it's, not it's just not enough. It's not so enough. Correct. It's definitely working. Correct. Right. It's, not, it's not enough to help people necessarily feel better. Yeah. It's absolutely necessary. Right. 
for uh, disease progression um, or stopping disease progression. So um, big announcements at, at this conference this year um, were two drugs on the horizon for celiac disease treatment. So now potentially drugs in addition to gluten-free diet. Mm. Um, so there's a biotech company that has a new drug um, that is moving into phase two trials. And very interestingly, this drug trains the liver to ignore the immune response to gliadin what in about celiac the other patients. Organs? <laughs> those don't matter. I mean, those don't matter. I think it's I think it's coming from the liver. That signal comes from the liver to attack. I see. Um, um, while leaving healthy elements of the immune system intact. So basically, it reduces that attack on gliadin when you eat it. So I'm just gonna, you know, I've been in medicine at this point long enough where I know that sometimes a phase two clinical trial yep. is still a wah wah wah. Absolutely. So I just want to say that there's only been one drug ever, ever, ever that made it to phase three for celiac disease. Ninety percent of them get shut down in phase one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is pretty exciting, but it doesn't so mean anything. It's better than the past. Okay, great. That's good to know. <laughs> um, basically, in their most recent study. Um, um, they they found that it induces tolerance to gliadin and modulates pathogenic mechanisms in CDIL2, CD8 T cells. They 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 uh, tested a lot of immune markers in this, and the findings were that they found significant decreases compared with the placebo in T cell reactivity to gliadin following a gluten challenge. So a lot of these drugs are trying to allow for folks to eat some gluten in their uh-huh. diet and not have it degrade their small intestine. And eating gluten, despite all the th- reasons we talked about not in the last episode, um, is actually pretty important for the microbiome in the average person, someone who can really modify their in diet. In the average American. The average American. Because that's at least. not... Yes. The average American is not the average yeah. Chinese or Indian. Right. So someone vegetables rich in their diet. This might be the only plant matter. Yeah. Yeah. We've we are called you know sad diets for a reason because they're pretty sad. But removing gluten for a <laughs> lot of folks because it stands for standard American diet. <laughs> yes. That's actually why it's called a sad. Diet. <laughs> but also it's sad. Uh, yeah. I I think it's like you know folks who just decide they want to go vegan. It's very oh. carb heavy. You know usually we mess it up. We don't have good education and support for folks who are making these diet changes. So it really messes up the, the microbiome. So that's one drug we're looking at on the horizon, potentially could allow people to eat some gluten and whatever. The next one was a celiac shield study, which is a combination of two enzymes that degrade the gluten in the stomach. Um, you take it with meals. It's in phase two. Um, and basically, uh, this one showed in, in their studies that it reduced that villus to crypt ratio. All right. Um, no, increase, increase, increase. increase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. basically, you know, in those folks that even years after a celiac yeah. diet still had their carpet shaved, right? Um, this may help to bring it back a little bit. Well, also, and I wonder if that could help for other causes of ha- causing blunted villi, or if great. it's celiac. Yep. I mean, I'm skeptical of pharmaceuticals being able to Just negate. In general, I'm with you. Uh, <laughs> gluten yeah. ingestion um, and sort of miti- mitigating the effects of eating something that your body's mounting an autoimmune response to without also suppressing the immune system in ways that we may not intend to. But if they can figure out a way to help with yeah. negating the villus atrophy more um, comprehensively, that would be amazing. Are either of you going to talk about the Hellman study? Should I talk about the Hellman study? You can talk about it. Let me finish this and then, yeah, you go into that one because I don't have that. Um, Basically, in this one, the celiac shield study with the enzymes, abdominal pain was 93% better in patients. So that's significant because that's a huge complaint that brings people in. And serum markers um, were better. So it was it was the villus decrypt ratio, serum markers, and symptoms were improved by taking this. Everything. It seems it seems good so phase far, two, but it's versus what we currently have, which is stop eating gluten and still probably feel bad. 
So, okay. Tell okay, me all about so, this Hellman. So there was a Hellman study that was, I think, maybe 2013, but don't quote me on that. Uh, and it was a very small study, and it gave Hellman's to celiac patients. And within these 20 patients, a large amount of them actually were no longer celiac disease. Right. Huh. So it was pretty interesting exposing to a Hellman. Wow. Um, at, that was a small study. Uh, and that was, like, actually pretty promising on a lot of fronts totally. because it basically it follows this the this old friend theory you know this old friend being like we evolved with helmets we evolved with parasites we evolved with protozoa and when we have these external factors for our immune system to attack the, the immune system does not attack itself right so then they recently i think in the last year redid this study on a larger scale and it did not look nearly oh, as positive too bad. so this is again the phase two phase three trials right. or like scale you know this is a preliminary trial versus one that uh, you know has yeah. a bigger pool it wasn't looking as good because of safety no, because the numbers didn't the stick the numbers are larger stick. yeah Bummer. So there's that, but so there's like some small data, but as you're scaling it, it's not looking as good. I yeah. do think immune regulation is a key pathway, though, to correcting things. Like I think we got to talk probably more about how we repair the the gut, right, the right. gut lining, in the context and and not with microbiome stuff, but how we do that and and um, also how we control the immune response. Right. I think immune modulation is something for a lot of my patients where we've just been trying to use antimicrobials and dietary changes and right. things are just not improving. I've been using a lot more <laughs> low-dose naltrexone. I started using more transfer factors. Interesting. So I will tell you what I do in my practice is with every patient, you have to look at the whole body, right? right? right. And I think we did a really good job today talking about hormones. Talking, So you have to look at their hormones, talking about detoxification pathways, talking about immune modulation, and then just talking about like, what do we have in our toolkit that's really good at healing microbiome? Right. I'd like to say I don't have any data on this. Like, mm -hmm. I've never looked at how much. This is just the basic things that we know generally right. uh, help the GI health. And that's right. like colostrum. That's like glutamine. Yep. Probiotics mm -hmm. are interesting. Yep. So those are the things that I'm looking at. Immunoglobulins. Yeah, fixing the leaky gut markers, like getting intestinal permeability back on board yeah. for folks, of course. Right. I have used peptides with a few people, BPC-157. It's pricey, but it has helped quite a bit. It has helped. You've it has helped in a few of my patients with long-term issues that are very like sensitive patients, meaning they can tell when something helps them or not, and they notice a significant difference. With oral? With oral peptides. Cool. Yes. Cool. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, stay tuned for episode three here, but I would like to say that we do see in all GI conditions that have been studied, including just IBS, um, dysbiosis. Like that's very well documented yes. in, you know, imbalances in the healthy families as well as more likely to have the pathogenic strains. This brings me to my belief system that <laughs> everything that naturopaths have been saying for the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years, yeah. generally data and science catches it up with us. To the gut. We've been talking about dysbiosis since the 1970s. Right. I can remember when I started school. I started school in 2001, so we're talking about 20 years now, and there was, like, no interest outside of the functional medicine naturopathic community about probiotics, yeah. and now probiotics are, like, the hottest things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm, like, naturopaths are way, one, generally always crazy, yeah. and two, usually right. Well, I think there's room to think outside the box, and like you were saying, think about how different systems are playing into what's happening. And how everybody is one system. Yeah. We are all one We're system. more complex than we like yeah, to think that's in like when, medicine. When, uh, Rebecca was like, this drug that affects the liver, I'm yeah. like, no, the other organs don't matter. It's complete <laughs> yeah. sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all one body. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, 
touching on just a couple key things that, that are relevant here, a gluten-free diet itself could be involved in some of this imbalance. They've studied that and shown that celiac disease folks on a gluten-free diet decreases a lot of the beneficial strains. Well, and it could be our lack of education in teaching people how to eat properly. 100%. And that's where we're at. Yes, that is where we're at. Specifically bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. Um, Two microbiome factors that we need to have on our radar, and Dr. Gervich, I think you might be curious to hear this one, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. That's my favorite bad guy. Known biofilmmaker, correct? Um, Metabolizes our gluten peptides into shorter peptides that translocate faster meaning it basically chops up our gluten into more delicious bite-sized pieces for our immune system, triggering a higher T-cell and immune cell response, mm. progressing Two. disease. Whoa. So Pseudomonas aeruginosa, not a good thing for folks with celiac disease. On the other hand, lactobacillus, or anyone, probably or anyone. anyone, lactobacillus strains, which are decreased in folks on a gluten-free diet, metabolize and detoxify those same peptides. Mm-hmm. I also want to go back. Pseudomonas, I'm sure, is not always a bad guy. Right. It's probably, Correct. Yeah, it's it's probably, probably in some quantity. For, yes. 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 It just is easy for it if to it become a bad guy in our or... pathologic cultural way that we it eat has, and live. And... It has some tricks and it's up its sleeve that yes. are bad. It's smart. It's really, really smart. It is a smart little stinker in there. So anyway, we'll talk a lot next time about what we do about this dysbiosis. I'm going to get into a little bit on tryptophan and how, the, why that matters. Oh yeah. Been, we're like, getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, so stay tuned. Um, anybody want to list some takeaways for today? I just want to throw in one more thing with immune modulation. I don't think I was doing trials of low-dose naltrexone long enough until I heard a lecture by Dr. Weinstock. I'm now doing at least a... Yes. He's like the LDN guy. He's wonderful. Yeah. So now I'm doing at least a six-month trial. Um, So initially, I wasn't always doing the titration. So I'm always doing the titration (laughs) schedule over several weeks and then doing a six-month trial. And I feel like I have had better results with systemic effects that patients... Again, I have these patients that can tell when something's working, but I don't think I was using it quite as long enough and I wasn't being as specific and give it a couple weeks at each... Right. dose before going up because not everyone needs 4.5 they might feel better at 3 or 1.5 so totally yep take homes uh take homes are lots of people are getting missed that's mm-hmm, a take home mm-hmm. uh depending on where you live if you're a female in the northwest and you have a female gastro you're good yeah if with you're diarrhea. A, with diarrhea if you're a male <laughs> in the northeast, northeast and you have GERD Sorry, dude. If you're uh, a person of color, <laughs> you're in real trouble because you are really it's getting best, You need to advocate. We all need to advocate. Absolutely. If you are in one of those groups, um, you deserve the same care. So you may need to do more advocating, unfortunately, than someone else in a different position. Yep. And serum results may be wonky in different folks. We need to be Earlier aware on. of that. And yep. we, should be, we should be mindful of food insecurity you know, depending on what area you work in and live in, we don't want to forget, like, our patients might not be living and working in that same area and be mindful of obstacles that we may not think of. You mean totally. everybody doesn't live in Portland, Oregon? And they don't have a Whole Foods Shops every five minutes Foods? down the street <laughs> and, or even a Trader Joe's, which we're, uh, you know, we have our own preferences of even which of those we That's think true. are good yeah. enough for yep. us. So. And then don't forget about hormones. Hormones do play a part. That's why men seem to heal up a little bit faster than women. But potentially, potentially and or there are a lot of cultural factors, <laughs> access to care, you know. And then instead <laughs> of cleaning up our food supply <laughs> and reducing pesticide use, we will hopefully have a drug that we can take. That is how we, that is the American way. <laughs> Lots of drugs. And then screen for SIBO, have discussions about vaccines, particularly oh, cu- in children. Also, you should probably cut out dairy initially upon yeah. healing because there lactase. might be some issues and with lactase. And depending on your where your family is from, 
90 plus percent of you will become lactose intolerant as you get older. Ooh. Not everyone, but depending That's what ethnicity you are. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then we've got a long way to go in healing the gut. Yep. And a gluten not diet, uh, gluten-free diet is the only treatment that we have and it's mandatory for everybody, but for lots of people, it's not enough. It's right. not enough. Okay. Great episode, guys. Awesome. I learned a ton. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Eee!